Chapter Nine, Part A of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Nine, Part A. Now Jeanne was quite well again, she thought she would like to return the Fourvilles' visit and also to call on the Couteliers. Julien had just bought another carriage at a sale, a phaeton. It only needed one horse, so they could go out twice a month now instead of once and they used it for the first time one bright December morning. After driving for two hours across the Normandy plains, they began to go down to a little valley, whose sloping sides were covered with trees, while the level ground at the bottom was cultivated. The ploughed fields were followed by meadows, the meadows by a fen covered with tall reeds, which waved in the wind like yellow ribbons, and then the road took a sharp turn, and the Chateau de Lavriette came in sight. It was built between a wooded slope on the one side and a large lake on the other, the water stretching from the chateau wall to the tall fir trees which covered the opposite acclivity. The carriage had to pass over an old drawbridge and under a vast Louis XIII archway before it drew up in front of a handsome building of the same period as the archway, with brick frames round the windows and slated turrets. Julien pointed out all the different beauties of the mansion to Jeanne, as if he were thoroughly acquainted with every nook and corner of it. "'Isn't it a superb place?' he exclaimed. "'Just look at that archway. On the other side of the house, which looks on to the lake, there is a magnificent flight of steps leading right down to the water. Four boats are moored at the bottom of the steps, two for the comte and two for the comtesse. The lake ends down there on the right, where you can see that row of poplars, and there the river, which runs to Fécamp, arises.' The place abounds in wildfowl, and the Comte passes all his time shooting. Ah, it is indeed a lordly residence. The hall door opened, and the fair-haired Comtesse came to meet her visitors with a smile on her face. She wore a trailing dress like a chatelaine of the Middle Ages, and exactly suited to the place in which she lived, she looked like some beautiful lady of the lake. Four out of the eight drawing-room windows looked on to the lake and the water looked dull and dismal, overshadowed as it was by the gloomy fir-trees, which covered the opposite slope. The Comtesse took both Jeanne's hands in hers as if she had known her for ages, placed her in a seat, and then drew a low chair beside her for herself, while Julien, who regained all his old refinement during the last five months, smiled and chatted in an easy, familiar way. The Comtesse and he talked about the rides they had had together, she laughed a little at his bad horsemanship and called him the tottering knight, and he too laughed, calling her, in return, the Amazon queen. A gun went off just under the window, and Jeanne gave a little cry. It was the comte shooting teal, and his wife called him in. There was the splash of oars, the grating of a boat against the stone steps, and then the comte came in, followed by two dogs of a reddish hue, which lay down on the carpet before the door, while the water dripped from their shaggy coats. The Comte seemed more at ease in his own house, and was delighted to see the Vicomte and Jeanne. He ordered the fire to be made up, and Madeira and biscuits to be brought. "'Of course you will dine with us,' he exclaimed. Jeanne refused the invitation, thinking of Paul, and as he pressed her to stay, and she still persisted in her refusal, Julien made a movement of impatience. Then, afraid of arousing her husband's quarrelsome temper, she consented to stay, 
though the idea of not seeing Paul till the next day was torture to her. They spent a delightful afternoon. First of all, the visitors were taken to see the springs, which flowed from the foot of a moss-covered rock into a crystal basin of water, which bubbled as if it were boiling. And then they went in a boat among the dry reeds, where paths of water had been formed by cutting down the rushes. The Comte rode, his two dogs sitting each side of him with their noses in the air, and each vigorous stroke of the oars lifted the boat half out of the water and sent it rapidly on its way. Jeanne let her hand trail in the water, enjoying the icy coolness which seemed to soothe her, and Julien and the Comtesse, well wrapped up in rugs, sat in smiling silence in the stern of the boat, as if they were too happy to talk. The evening drew on, and with it the icy northerly wind came over the withered reeds. The sun had disappeared behind the firs, and it made one cold to look at the crimson sky, covered with tiny red, fantastically shaped clouds. They all went into the big drawing-room, where an enormous fire was blazing. The room seemed to be filled with an atmosphere of warmth and comfort, and the Comte gaily took his wife in his strong arms like a child, and gave her two hearty kisses on her cheek. Jeanne could not help smiling at this good-natured giant, to whom his moustaches gave the appearance of an ogre. What wrong impressions of people one forms every day, she thought, and almost involuntarily she glanced at Julien. He was standing in the doorway, his eyes fixed on the Comte, and his face very pale. His expression frightened her, and going up to him she asked, "'What is the matter? Are you ill?' "'There's nothing the matter with me,' he answered churlishly. "'Leave me alone. I only feel cold.' Dinner was announced, and the Comte begged permission for his dogs to come into the dining-room. They came, and sat one on each side of their master, who every minute threw them some scrap of food. The animals stretched out their heads and wagged their tails, quivering with pleasure as he drew their long silky ears through his fingers. After dinner, when Jeanne and Julien began to say good-bye, the Comte insisted on their staying to see some fishing by torchlight. They and the Comtesse stood on the steps leading down to the lake, while the Comte got back into his boat with a servant carrying a lighted torch and a net. The torch cast strange trembling reflections over the water, its dancing glimmers even lighting up the firs beyond the reeds, and suddenly, as the boat turned round, an enormous, fantastic shadow was thrown on the background of the illumined wood. It was the shadow of a man, but the head rose above the trees and was lost against the dark sky, while the feet seemed to be down in the lake. This huge creature raised its arms as if it would grasp the stars. The movement was a rapid one, and the spectators on the steps heard a little splash. The boat tacked a little, and the gigantic shadow seemed to run along the wood, which was lighted up as the torch moved with the boat. Then it was lost in the darkness, then reappeared on the chateau wall, smaller, but more distinct, and the loud voice of the Comte was heard exclaiming, Gilbert, I have caught eight! The oars splashed, and the enormous shadow remained standing in the same place on the wall, but gradually it became thinner and shorter, the head seemed to sink lower and the body to get narrower, and when Monsieur de Fourville came up the steps, followed by the servant carrying the torch, it was reduced to his exact proportions, and faithfully copied all his movements. In the net he had eight big fish, which were still quivering. As Jeanne and Julien were driving home, well wrapped up in cloaks and rugs which the Fourvilles had lent them, 
What a good-hearted man that giant is, said Jeanne, almost to herself. Yes, answered Julien, but he makes too much show of his affection sometimes before people. A week after their visit to the Fourvilles, they called on the Coutiliers, who were supposed to be the highest family in the province, and whose estate lay near Cagny. The new chateau, built in the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, lay in a magnificent park, entirely surrounded by walls, and the ruins of the old chateau could be seen from the higher parts of the grounds. A liveried servant showed the visitors into a large, handsome room. In the middle of the floor, an enormous Sevres vase stood on a pedestal, into which a crystal case had been let, containing the king's autograph letter, offering this gift to the Marquis Leopold Hervé Joseph Germain de Varneville de Rollebosc de Coutillier. Jeanne and Julien were looking at this royal present when the Marquis and Marquise came in, the latter wearing her hair powdered. The Marquise thought her rank constrained her to be amiable, and her desire to appear condescending made her affected. Her husband was a big man with white hair brushed straight up all over his head, and a haughtiness in his voice, in all his movements, in his every attitude, which plainly showed the esteem in which he held himself. There were people who had a strict etiquette for everything, and whose feelings seemed always stilted like their words. They both talked on without waiting for an answer, smiled with an air of indifference, and behaved as if they were accomplishing a duty imposed upon them by their superior birth in receiving the smaller nobles of the province with such politeness. Jeanne and Julien tried to make themselves agreeable, though they felt ill at ease, and when the time came to conclude their visit, they hardly knew how to retire, though they did not want to stay any longer. However, the Marquise herself ended the visit naturally and simply, by stopping short the conversation, like a queen ending an audience. "'I don't think we will call on anyone else unless you want to,' said Julien, as they were going back. "'The Fourvilles are quite as many friends as I want.' And Jeanne agreed with him. Dark, dreary December passed slowly away. Everyone stayed at home like the winter before, but Jeanne's thoughts were too full of Paul for her ever to feel dull. She would hold him in her arms, covering him with those passionate kisses which mothers lavish on their children, then offering the baby's face to his father. Why don't you kiss him, she would say. You hardly seem to love him. Julien would just touch the infant's smooth forehead with his lips, holding his body as far away as possible, as if he were afraid of the little hands touching him in their aimless movements. Then he would go quickly out of the room, almost as though the child disgusted him. The mayor, the doctor, and the curé came to dinner occasionally, and sometimes the Fourvilles, who had become very intimate with Jeanne and her husband. The comte seemed to worship Paul. He nursed the child on his knees from the time he entered Les Peuples to the time he left, sometimes holding him the whole afternoon, and it was marvellous to see how delicately and tenderly he touched him with his huge hands. He would tickle the child's nose with the ends of his long moustaches, and then suddenly cover his face with kisses, almost as passionate as Jeanne's. It was the great trouble of his life that he had no children. March was bright, dry, and almost mild. The Comtesse Gilbert again proposed that they should all four go for some rides together, and Jeanne, a little tired of the long weary evenings and the dull, monotonous days, was only too pleased at the idea, 
and agreed to it at once. It took her a week to make her riding habit, and then they commenced their rides. They always rode two and two, the Comtesse and Julien leading the way, and the Comte and Jeanne about a hundred feet behind. The latter couple talked easily and quietly as they rode along, for, each attracted by the other's straightforward ways and kindly heart, they had become fast friends. Julien and the Comtesse talked in whispers, alternated by noisy bursts of laughter, and looked in each other's eyes to read there the things their lips did not utter. And often they would break into a gallop, as if impelled by a desire to escape alone to some country far away. Sometimes it seemed as if something irritated Gilbert. Her sharp tones would be borne on the breeze to the ears of the couple loitering behind, and the comte would say to Jeanne with a smile, "'I don't think my wife got out of bed the right side this morning.' One evening, as they were returning home, the comtesse began to spur her mare, and then pull her in with sudden jerks on the rein. "'Take care, or she'll run away with you,' said Julien two or three times. "'So much the worse for me. It's nothing to do with you.' she replied in such cold, hard tones that the clear words rang out over the fields as if they were actually floating in the air. The mare reared, kicked, and foamed at the mouth, and the comte cried out anxiously, "'Do take care of what you are doing, Gilbert!' Then in a fit of defiance, for she was in one of those obstinate moods that will brook no word of advice, she brought her whip heavily down between the animal's ears. The mare reared, beat the air with her four legs for a moment, then, with a tremendous bound, set off over the plain at the top of her speed. First she crossed a meadow, then some ploughed fields, kicking up the wet, heavy soil behind her, and going at such a speed that in a few moments the others could hardly distinguish the comtesse from her horse. Julien stood stock still, crying, "'Madame! Madame!' The comte gave a groan, and bending down over his powerful steed, galloped after his wife. He encouraged his steed with voice and hand, urged it on with whip and spur, and it seemed as though he carried the big animal between his legs, and raised it from the ground at every leap it took. The horse went at an inconceivable speed, keeping a straight line regardless of all obstacles, and Jeanne could see the two outlines of the husband and wife diminish and fade in the distance, till they vanished altogether, like two birds chasing each other till they are lost to sight beyond the horizon. Julien walked his horse up to his wife, murmuring angrily, "'She is mad to-day,' and they both went off after their friends, who were hidden in a dip in the plain. In about a quarter of an hour they saw them coming back, and soon they came up to them. The comte, looking red, hot, and triumphant, was leading his wife's horse, the comtesse was very pale, her features looked drawn and contracted, and she leant on her husband's shoulder as if she were going to faint. That day Jeanne understood for the first time how madly the comte loved his wife. All through the following month the comtesse was merrier than she had ever been before. She came to Les Peuples as often as she could, and she was always laughing and jumping up to kiss Jeanne. She seemed to have found some unknown source of happiness, and her husband simply worshipped her now, following her about with his eyes, and seeking every pretext for touching her hand or her dress. "'We are happier now than we have ever been before,' he said one evening to Jeanne. 
Gilbert has never been so affectionate as she is now. Nothing seems to vex her or make her angry. Until lately, I was never quite sure that she loved me. But now I know she does. Julien had changed for the better also. He had become gay and good-tempered, and their friendship seemed to have brought peace and happiness to both families. The spring was exceptionally warm and forward. The sun cast its warm rays upon the budding trees and flowers from early morn until the sweet soft evening. It was one of those favoured years when the world seems to have grown young again and nature to delight in bringing everything to life once more. Jeanne felt a vague excitement in the presence of this reawakening of the fields and woods. She gave way to a sweet melancholy and spent hours languidly dreaming. All the tender incidents of her first hours of love came back to her, not that any renewal of affection for her husband stirred her heart. That had been completely destroyed. But the soft breeze which fanned her cheek and the sweet perfume which filled the air seemed to breathe forth a tender sigh of love which made her pulse beat quicker. She liked to be alone, and in the warm sunshine to enjoy these vague peaceful sensations which aroused no thoughts. One morning she was lying thus half dormant, when suddenly she saw in her mind that sunlit space in the little wood near Etretat, where for the first time she had felt thrilled by the presence of the man who loved her then, where he had for the first time timidly hinted at his hopes, and where she had believed that she was going to realize the radiant future of her dreams. She thought she would like to make a romantic, superstitious pilgrimage to the wood, and she felt as if a visit to that sunny spot would in some way alter the course of her life. Julien had gone out at daybreak. She did not know whither, so she ordered the Martin's little white horse, which she sometimes rode, to be saddled and set off. It was one of those calm days when there is not a leaf nor a blade of grass stirring. The wind seemed dead, and everything looked as though it would remain motionless until the end of time. Even the insects had disappeared. A burning, steady heat descended from the sun in a golden mist, and Jeanne walked her horse along, enjoying the stillness, and every now and then looking up at a tiny white cloud which hung like a snowy fleece in the midst of a bright blue sky. She went down into the valley leading to the sea, between the two great arches which are called the gates of Etretat and went slowly towards the wood. The sunlight poured down through the foliage, which as yet was not very thick, and Jeanne wandered along the little paths, unable to find the spot where she had sat with Julien. She turned into a long alley, and at the other end of it saw two saddle-horses fastened to a tree. She recognized them at once. They were Gilbert's and Julien's. Tired of being alone and pleased at this unexpected meeting, she trotted quickly up to them, and when she reached the two animals, which were waiting quietly, as if accustomed to stand like this, she called aloud. There was no answer. On the grass, which looked as if someone had rested there, lay a woman's glove and two whips. Julien and Gilbert had evidently sat down and then gone farther on, leaving the horses tied to the tree. Jeanne wondered what they could be doing, and getting off her horse, she leant against the trunk of a tree and waited for a quarter of an hour or twenty minutes. She stood quite motionless, and two little birds flew down onto the grass close by her. 
one of them hopped round the other, fluttering its outstretched wings and chirping and nodding his little head. All at once they coupled. Jeanne watched them, as surprised as if she had never known of such a thing before. Then she thought, of course, it is springtime. Then came another thought, a suspicion. She looked again at the glove, the whips, and the two horses standing riderless. Then she sprang on her horse with an intense longing to leave this place. She started back to Les Peuples at a gallop. Her brain was busy reasoning, connecting different incidents, and thinking it all out. How was it that she had never noticed anything, had never guessed this before? How was it that Julien's frequent absence from home, his renewed attention to his toilet, his better temper, had told her nothing? Now she understood Gilbert's nervous irritability, her exaggerated affection for herself, and the bliss in which she had appeared to be living lately, and which had so pleased the Comte. She pulled up her horse, for she wanted to think calmly, and the quick movement confused her ideas. After the first shock she became almost indifferent. She felt neither jealousy nor hatred, only contempt. She did not think about Julien at all, for nothing that he could do would have astonished her. But the twofold treachery of the Comtesse, who had deceived her friend as well as her husband, hurt her deeply. So everyone was treacherous and untrue and faithless. Her eyes filled with tears, for sometimes it is as bitter to see an illusion destroyed as to witness the death of a friend. She resolved to say nothing more about her discovery. Her heart would be dead to everyone but Paul and her parents, but she would bear a smiling face. When she reached home, she caught up her son in her arms, carried him to her room, and pressed her lips to his face again and again, and for a whole hour she played with and caressed him. End of chapter 9, part A.